Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. In case you haven't noticed, the end of the year is fast approaching and it's time to start thinking about Christmas gifts for your friends and family. If you're unable to think of what to buy for your kids, cousins, aunts and co-workers, don't feel stressed out. I have a suggestion for you. Why not get them all some nice merch from the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop? I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom. Just imagine the smile on your granny's face when she opens her gifts and find a coffee mug with the message Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Or the pure joy rushing through your kids when they get a pack of Scandinavian History Podcast stickers in various colors. Not to mention your sister-in-law's face when she receives her t-shirt with the text Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Anyway, now let's get back to the show. Last time, we talked about King Magnus Eriksson of Sweden, Norway, and Scania, and Finland, and Iceland, and Greenland. He was the king who ruled over the largest Scandinavian realm up until that point, but who lost it all and ended his life living in some kind of internal exile in Norway under the protection of his son. Today, we'll look at one of the many aristocrats who made life difficult for King Magnus Eriksson, namely a woman known as Bridget of Sweden, or Saint Bridget. She was a mystic and the founder of an order of nuns and monks. She's perhaps better known for receiving visions from heaven and for being canonized after her death. As late as 1999, Saint Bridget was even promoted to be one of the six Roman Catholic patron saints of Europe, together with Benedict of Nursia, Cyril and Methodius, Catherine of Siena, and Edith Stein. Episode 52, Saint Bridget. Even though Bridget was to devote the last part of her life to religious matters, she wasn't born a saint. She was actually born into one of the richest and most powerful families in the Swedish aristocracy, belonging to the country's absolute elite. Her father was a knight by the name of Birger, so she was known as Bridget Birgerstatter. Knight Birger wasn't just a knight and a wealthy landowner, but also the law speaker of Uppland. As you hopefully remember from the episode where we discussed the structure of Viking society, the law speakers occupied a crucial position in Scandinavian political life and had done so for hundreds of years. And if you think that's a big deal, Bridget's mother, Ingeborg, had even more impressive bragging rights in aristocratic circles. She had been born into the Bielbo family. Yes, that Bielbo family. That was the same family that Jarl Birger Magnusson belonged to, so through her mother, Bridget was related to the Swedish royal family of her time. And for those of you who may not remember, the royal family of her time was made up of the descendants of the last Jarl, Birger Magnusson. First of all, his son, Valdemar Birgersson, who was deposed by his own brother, Magnus Birgersson, aka Magnus Barnlock. Then, Magnus's son, Birger Magnusson, became king, and after his brothers, Eric and Valdemar, tried to depose him, he had them killed. 
Eventually, though, Eric's son Magnus ended up on the throne, and it was this Magnus Eriksson whose life Bridget would end up making difficult by having visions of him having sex with other men. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before she started to communicate celestial indiscretions about the king, Bridget had actually been close to the king's family, something that shouldn't come as a huge surprise considering she belonged to a peripheral branch of the royal family tree. She was credited with having taught Queen Blanca to speak Swedish, and she was the godmother of the royal couple's eldest son, Eric, who, as you may remember from last time, would later try to usurp his father, causing the loss of Scania before he and his family died in some disease. In 1316, at the ripe old age of 14, Bridget married Ulf Gudmarsson, who also belonged to the upper crust of Swedish nobility. They had eight children together, which wasn't considered a particularly extraordinary number in those days. But of those eight children, only two died in infancy, and that was an extraordinary high survival rate for the 14th century. Especially her daughter Catherine would become important in Bridget's later life and in her saintly career. Like many highborn ladies of her time, and later times as well, Bridget was involved in charity work. She and her husband also undertook several pilgrimages, which a lot of people tended to do in the Middle Ages when Scandinavia was still a part of the Catholic religious sphere. But most people didn't have the means to travel quite as far as Bridget and her husband. In 1341, they set out on yet another pilgrimage, this time to one of the most important Christian pilgrimage sites in Europe, the tomb of St. James in Santiago de Compostela in Spain, one of those destinations that were only attainable for Scandinavians of means. On the way home from Spain, Bridget's husband fell seriously ill and the couple turned to the church for help, not only because they were pious people, but because most hospitals were run by monks or nuns at the time. Bridget feared their husband would die, but then St. Denis appeared to her and reassured her. Her husband would make it back to Sweden. The saint also informed Bridget that she had been selected to transfer messages from God to those he thought needed various pieces of advice. St. Denis turned out to be right. Bridget's husband eventually got well enough for them to continue their journey back to Sweden. But already the following year, in 1344, Ulf passed away at the Alvastra Abbey in Ostrogothia. After her husband's death, Bridget stayed on at the Abbey for a while. She decided to spend the rest of her life working for the church, caring for the sick and the poor. Soon she started to have visions again, just like Saint Denis had said she would. One of the first visions contained a message from her dead husband, Ulf. Apparently he was stuck in purgatory, and he asked her to pray for him to speed up his continuation into heaven. He also took the opportunity to inform her about how he wanted his inheritance to be distributed. That was handy, since there was some disagreement among his heirs about who should get what. By a sheer coincidence, her husband's posthumous last will and testament was identical to Bridget's own thoughts on what should be done with his money and his earthly possessions. Around this time, she also started to develop plans to establish a religious community of her own. These plans would eventually bear fruit, and she became the founder of the Order of the Most Holy Savior, or the Bridgetines. The main center of the order would be established in Vastena, some 25 kilometers northeast of Alvastra, where her husband had passed away. And King Magnus Eriksson and Queen Blanca gave generous donations to the order, including land. At this point, 
Bridget also started to have recurring visions. Jesus appeared to her and proclaimed that he loved her and that he wanted her to speak for him to the world. According to her own account, Bridget was far too modest to believe that Jesus would have chosen her of all people, so he had to send his mother, the Virgin Mary, to back up his claims. The Queen of Heaven also explained to Bridget exactly how the birth of Jesus had occurred and how, anatomically speaking, she had been able to remain a virgin also after the birth. Later, the Virgin Mary would also appear to Bridget to give her tips on how she should be dressing and various details about how she should organize her religious order. Bridget had a cleric called Matthias write down all these celestial messages. He wrote them all down in Latin, even though Jesus and Mary always spoke to Bridget in Swedish, since Bridget herself didn't understand Latin. Still, it was best that the written text was in Latin, since that language lends a certain gravitas to religious tomes that Swedish just doesn't do, at least in the opinion of most people involved in evaluating such matters. To the compilation of visions, Father Matthias added a brief description of Bridget's character, vouching for her piety and sincerity. The collection of visions was then sent to Uppsala, where the Archbishop of Sweden put together a commission tasked with investigating whether Bridget's divine visions were authentic or if she was possessed by the devil. And those were the only two options. Bridget was either relaying messages from God or from the devil. No one seems to have contemplated the option that she wasn't communicating with anyone, but that she was merely a slightly bored widow who was trying to build support for this new religious order she was trying to get off the ground. Considering the fact that Bridget was personally related to the king and to several members of the most illustrious families in the realm, it wasn't all too surprising that the Archbishop's Commission reached the conclusion that it was in fact God who had been in touch with Bridget. When she had received the ecclesiastical seal of approval, Bridget started to have visions with an increased frequency. In these visions, she witnessed conversations between God, Jesus, the Virgin Mary, prophets, saints and others. Many of the visions touched on Swedish domestic policy and it turned out that the Holy Family and its celestial entourage were not happy with the way King Magnus Eriksson was running the country. So it probably came as a relief to King Magnus when he learned that Bridget had decided to set out on yet another international journey. You see, even though the Archbishop and his commission had validated her visions and the King had donated the land in Vastena to establish her order, the Pope still hadn't okayed the project. So when 1350 was proclaimed to be a jubilee year, Bridget let it be known that she was going on a pilgrimage to Rome despite the fact that the plague was still raging in Scandinavia, as well as here and there on the continent. She was hoping she'd be able to convince the Pope to agree to her plans if they met in person. Needless to say though, Bridget didn't make the decision on her own. The idea that she should go and talk to the Pope came to her in a vision from heaven, obviously. Bridget received money for the journey from none other than the king himself. On the one hand, you could say that that was big of him, considering what Bridget claimed that Jesus and the Virgin Mary had said about him. But on the other hand, this was probably the best way to get rid of the pesky peddler in celestial criticism about the way he governed or whom he slept with. Bridget travelled with her daughter Catherine and a small group of priests and hangers-on, and once they arrived in Rome, Bridget was horrified by what she found. This was during the so-called Babylonian captivity of the papacy, 
which meant that the Holy Father wasn't present in the Eternal City. He wasn't all the way in Babylon though, but only in Avignon, because of the conflict with the French king, which is too long and too peripheral to our story to get into here. The point is that the Pope hadn't resided in Rome for over 40 years by this point, and in the papal absence, standards had slipped. Bridget found churches and monasteries in decay and even ruins, and the licentiousness and loose sexual mores of both nuns and priests outraged the pious Bridget. On top of all that, the political life in the city was dominated by more or less open warfare between the leading Roman families, leading to a general sense of insecurity and lawlessness. Bridget immediately started to have visions aimed against the moral decay of the church and its representatives, the corruption, the greed and the ubiquitous sex. Through its outraged Swedish conduit, Heaven let those responsible for the state of affairs know, in quite some detail, what was awaiting them in hell as a punishment for what they had done or failed to do. Since it was a jubilee year, the Pope had been allowed to go to Rome, and so in a break between her visions, Bridget had an audience with the Holy Father and presented her plans for her order. The Pope agreed in principle, but he had a few suggestions for tweaks here and there. Bridget wasn't having any of it. Instead of humbly accepting the Pope's ideas, she had another vision. It contained a warning to the Pope. If he were to return to Avignon, he would die. The Pope ignored the warning, most likely because he was more afraid of the King of France than some loony widow from the northern edge of civilization. But maybe he should have listened to Bridget after all, because soon after his return to Avignon, he did in fact die. This was obviously sad for the Pope, but since Bridget had provided her celestial warning in public, the coming to pass of her vision improved her standing in Rome. People started to take her and her communications from above a little more seriously after she'd been right about the Pope dying. Bridget's image among the Romans was further boosted by the fact that she, unlike so many others, insisted on sticking to her Christian values, not only by going to confession every day, which she did, but also by helping those in need, tending to the poor and the sick. Still, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. She was far from universally loved. It was mostly the pious, the poor and the sick who loved her. The rich and the powerful still tended to resent her for her acerbic criticism of their unchristian behavior. And unfortunately for Bridget, it was the rich and the powerful who held the keys to the future of her religious order in their grubby little hands. Only in 1370, 20 years after she'd first set foot in Rome, did Pope Urban V finally give the official papal blessing to Bridget's proposal for a religious order. Even though she at long last had achieved what she'd left Sweden to do, she chose not to return home. Instead, Bridget decided to go on another pilgrimage, this time to the Holy Land itself. In November 1371, Bridget, who was 68 years old by now, left Rome together with her daughter Catherine, two of her sons, a bishop and a couple of monks. Whatever you may think of Bridget, it was impressive that a woman of her age chose to undertake such an arduous journey instead of just spending the winter in comfortable proximity to a warm fireplace. The journey became especially arduous when the ship they were travelling on sank off the shores of Cyprus in the spring of 1372. 
The joy and relief of having been rescued by the locals soon turned into horror and disgust when Bridget realized that the Cypriots weren't good Catholics, but rather Orthodox Christians, and therefore heretics in her eyes. She promptly had a vision where she was told by her heavenly informant that all the people of Cyprus would die and suffer in hell for all eternity if they didn't join the Roman Catholic Church. Clearly, the Cypriots weren't familiar with her ability to predict death by vision because they passed on the offer to become Catholics. So Bridget and her entourage didn't linger but continued on their journey. On May 12th, 1372, they reached Jerusalem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Bridget was enthralled by the holiness of the place, and she had an impromptu vision where Jesus let her know that all her and her travel companions since had been immediately forgiven the moment they passed over the threshold of the church. As a bonus, some of her relatives who had been stuck in purgatory until now were also let into paradise as a reward for her reaching the tomb of Jesus. Later, Bridget walked along Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem, and once again Jesus appeared before her and gave her a private tour describing all he'd gone through when he walked the same route some 1,339 years before. All throughout her journey to the Holy Land, Bridget would work on the details of her order, sending instructions back to Sweden. These instructions included architecture, interior design, clothing and the administrative hierarchy of the order. Bridget's order should be a community of both nuns and monks. Usually, you'd only have either men or women living at any one particular ecclesiastical institution, but in order to make sure that there wouldn't be any irregular activities going on, the nuns and the monks were housed in separate cloisters. The men and women who joined the Bridgetines were to live in poverty and had to give up all their possessions to the poor, with the exception of books. They were allowed to have as many books as they liked. It's noteworthy that Bridget insisted that an abbess symbolizing the Virgin Mary should be the leader of the order, managing both the nuns and the monks. Bridget returned to Rome in the spring of 1373, but the journey had been tough for her, physically. One of her sons had also died along the way, which obviously had taken a toll emotionally as well. Bridget never really recovered, and on July 23rd that same year she passed away. Her last wish was to be placed on the dining table so that she'd have the privilege to die on wood, just like Jesus had. She made no request about being nailed to it, though. In one of the last visions before she died, Bridget said she saw baby Jesus lying on a cloth, not swaddled in it and the baby was shining, competing with the other modest light sources in the stable. Next to him, the Virgin Mary, with hair blonde as gold, knelt beside him in prayer. This vision became quite influential in Christian art, and if you google the adoration of the child, your results will include a lot of images of an unswaddled glowing Jesus, all thanks to Bridget, apparently. After the funeral, Bridget was given a temporary grave in a church in Rome, but four months after her death, in early December 1373, her daughter Catherine and her remaining son, accompanied by a small entourage, set off from Rome with the earthly remains of Bridget Birgerstadter. They reached their destination, Vastena, the centre of Bridget's new religious order, in July the following year. Most of Bridget's body was buried there, in Vastena, 
but a fragment of her hip bone was brought to Uppsala Cathedral and it's supposedly still kept there in the same chapel with the remains of St. Eric, whom we talked about in episode 41, the crusade that maybe never was. A few years after her death, the campaign to get Bridget canonized started in earnest. It kicked off with the 1377 publication of the first edition of her Heavenly Revelations, or Revelationes Celestes, as they were called since they obviously had to be published in Latin for anyone to take them seriously. The guy behind the book was the former Castilian bishop Alfonso of Jaén, who had left his lofty office for the modest existence as a hermit, but who had been so intrigued by what he'd heard about Bridget that he'd gone to Rome to see her. He eventually became her last confessor, and through a vision, how else, Bridget was told that Alfonso should edit and publish her revelations after her death. All in all, Bridget's revelations contained a little over 600 visions, written down by her various confessors over a period of 30 years. The revelations consist of three main themes. First, visions with biblical, theological or dogmatic content. Second, Lessons and warnings directed at various individuals, mostly rulers and people of power, who had annoyed Bridget. Sorry, I mean God. The third theme is visions of life after death, including scenes showing the judgment of people and their post-life eternal existence in either heaven or hell. In addition, there are some random visions, including the rules for the Bridgetine order and an angelic hymn and some prayers praising the Virgin Mary. In 1384... Bridget's abbey in Vastena was finally opened, and Catherine, Bridget's daughter, became the first abbess. Vastena soon developed into an important site of pilgrimage in Sweden, and it remained one of the most important centers of religion and theological learning in the country until it was closed down during the Reformation. Despite her domestic popularity, Bridget had not been officially elevated to sainthood yet. Even though the Swedish archbishop had vouched for her and Alfonso of Jaén had edited the impressive book of hundreds of revelations, there were still those within the church who were skeptical of Bridget and the validity of her alleged direct line of communication with Jesus, Mary and all the others. Especially vocal in voicing their skepticism were some of the powerful people Bridget, sorry, God, had singled out for rebuke and humiliating visions of infernal punishments after death. But in October 1391, almost 18 years after her death, Bridget was finally canonized by Pope Boniface IX. This didn't mean that her critics gave up though, and the decision to make her a saint had to be confirmed at the Council of Constance in 1415, and since the authenticity of her visions continued to be called into question by some, they had to be given yet another official stamp of approval at the Council of Basel in 1436. The anniversary of her death, July 23rd, became St. Bridget's feast day, even though October 7th, the anniversary of her canonization, was initially used for that purpose. Even though the veneration of St. Bridget was most widespread in Sweden, she had followers also in other places, not least in Rome, where she'd spent most of her life after becoming a widow. Ever since she was a little girl, Bridget had always been fascinated by the torment and death of Jesus, and she apparently prayed to him to have him reveal exactly how many blows he suffered during his passion. Jesus informed her that the exact number of blows he had received was 5,480. He then went on to set up a schedule of daily prayers that, if followed scrupulously, would come out to 5,480 prayers in one year. 
It's not entirely clear if Bridget herself composed these prayers, but she was definitely the one to popularize their recital. These prayers became popular in medieval Europe, and they could be found in many prayer books and other religious texts. At some point, various promises of heavenly favors for anyone who completed this cycle of prayers started to pop up. For instance, it was claimed that if you managed to complete the cycle of prayers in one year without missing a single one of the 5,480 prayers, 15 of your relatives would be released from purgatory and brought into heaven. You'd also be able to confer a state of grace upon 15 living relatives. It's not entirely unlikely that these promises of forgiveness of sin and heavenly protection were one of the main reasons for the popularity of the prayers. As I've already mentioned, even though Bridget and her visions gained widespread popularity, there were also skeptics and detractors. One of the better known critics was Martin Luther, the man who started the Protestant Reformation that shook the Catholic Church in the 16th century. To begin with, Luther had actually been interested in Bridget's revelations, since she, much like him, had leveled sharp criticism at corruption, greed and hypocrisy throughout the church hierarchy. But unlike Martin Luther, Bridget never gave up on the idea of the Roman Church, and she never questioned its basic principles or dogma. Luther, on the other hand, came to reject many beliefs and practices promoted by the Catholic Church, including the idea that you could pray to the Virgin Mary or the saints in order to save the souls of others from purgatory. In due course, we'll talk more about Martin Luther, since Scandinavia eventually turned Protestant. But for the moment, it's enough to note that Luther soon drew the conclusion that Bridget's criticism, albeit sharp in tone, was superficial and failed to do away with the more fundamental issues that Luther himself considered grave errors. And since Martin Luther didn't shy away from using sharp tone himself, he attacked the Swedish saint, calling her that foolish Bridget. A later, no less sharp-tongued, critic was the 19th century Swedish author August Strindberg. Strindberg, known for his crisp prose, radical politics and misogyny, characterized Bridget as a power-hungry, vainglorious woman who intentionally vied for sainthood. Even the Roman Catholic Church itself no longer supports the explicit promises connected to completing Bridget's 5,480 prayer cycle in one year. In 1954, the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office, found that the promises were not to be trusted and therefore not to be circulated. But they didn't have any objections to the prayers themselves or the practice of reciting them. And Bridget is still considered a saint, and her visions are considered authentic by the Catholic Church. In October 1991, on the occasion of the 600th anniversary of her canonization, the legendary Pope John Paul II led an ecumenical prayer together with two Lutheran bishops in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Supposedly, that was the first time the Pope prayed together with Protestant bishops in public. John Paul II also declared Bridget one of the six patron saints of Europe in 1999. In addition, the Roman Catholic order that Bridget founded survived the Reformation and still exists today, both in Rome and in Sweden. Even the Protestant Church of Sweden has a society that meets and prays together, but not to Bridget, every year in the church in Vastena on the anniversary of her death, July 23rd. In the 1950s, Swedish scientists examined the two skulls found in the tomb traditionally considered to contain the remains of Bridget and her daughter Catherine. They had a theory that Bridget 
may have suffered from epilepsy, and that would somehow explain her visions. They found that one of the skulls had a cavity on the inside, and they speculated if this could be a sign of a benign brain tumor that could have caused Bridget's visions. But the debate about various diseases ended abruptly when later carbon-14 analysis and DNA tests showed that the skulls didn't come from related individuals, that there was at least 200 years age difference between the skulls, and that neither one of the skulls stemmed from the mid-14th century. So I guess we'll never know if there's a scientific explanation for Bridget's visions, or where her skull is to be found today. Anyway, next time we'll talk about something else that plagued the reign of King Magnus Eriksson, and not in a literary form like Bridget's visions, but literally. I refer, of course, to the plague itself. I've already promised a few times that we'll dive deeper into the cataclysmic event that was the arrival of the Great Plague to Scandinavia in the middle of the 14th century, and next time I intend to deliver on that promise. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. I also recommend that you go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.